We start off with John Green, who needs very little introduction from me, a past president, an aerodynamicist by discipline, a distinguished career in the Royal Royal Aeronautical Establishment, and within the procurement executive of the Ministry of Defence. John will speak on uh, Lackman, Boundary Layer Control, and Civil Aircraft, which I see has slightly transposed on the title slide, but none the worse for that. Well, perhaps I should explain the difference between my title, which is, has the word flow control in it, and the title in the, <coughs> in the meeting program, which says uh, Boundary Layer Control. Uh, and that is because when I got into the first part of what I'm going to talk about, which is Hanley Page's work on the slot, it, it, it slowly dawned on me that it was a misconception to think of leading-edge slots as boundary layer control, even though quite a lot of people, including Lackman and including Prantle and including lots of great men, actually thought that's what a slot did. So I changed it to flow control uh, in, the, in the light of reading carefully the work of AMO Smith at Douglas in the 1970s. Um, I, I'm going to talk about, <clears throat> basically, about these two Men. They were both, in their way, great men. They were, they were, they were exceedingly distinguished, capable individuals. Lachman was ten years younger than Handley Page. Um, <clears throat> and, and they came together by this extraordinary coincidence that they, in two countries that were at war, they came up with the same idea at the same time. Uh, and, as was said earlier, you know, this 40-year relationship, the first half of it was all to do with this thing that they invented together. Uh, and the second half of it, um, I suppose the first half was, how do you get more lift out of a wing? And they both had this idea. After the war, um, they tackled the other one, how do you get the drag down? And Lachman had ideas, and Hanley Page was very strongly for that. And Hanley Page had this vision too. You know, we will... We've, we've, we've solved the lift problem. Let's now go and do it together. Let's go and solve the drag problem. And uh, <clears throat> I'll begin by talking about this slotted wing pattern that Handley Page uh, took out. In the early years of flying, that's before World War I and through World War I, there was a high rate of aircraft and pilot losses. Um, in this country, it was classed as stalling, and incipient spin, uh, which meant that you'd lose the lift on one wing catastrophically and the aircraft would go into a spin. In France, they lost a lot of pilots and they called it la panne classique. And in Germany, they lost pilots and in, for them it was Ubersehen and, and Trudel. That was one motivation, uh, the reducing the loss due to aircraft stalling and spinning. Uh, the other motivation, it's clear that this was also a motivation to Handley Page, was he was conscious of, and he'd done, uh, even in those early days, he, <clears throat> he'd done modeling of trade-offs and optimization of aircraft, and he thought they had their, their wings were too big. And basically that was because it was the low-speed landing requirement that ter- determined the wing area. And if there was a way of increasing the maximum lift coefficient at low speeds, you could put a smaller wing on it, and that aircraft would go faster. Um, this is a picture, actually, it's a picture from Orville Wright pattern taken out in 1924. I've cut off the bottom half, which shows how a split flap would work. This shows this concept of what is happening um, as you increase angle of attack on these relatively thin aerofoils that were 
uh, prevalent at the time. Uh, the bottom picture shows it. The flow breaks away from the leading edge, and that area with all the curly wiggles underneath it is actually what people started to refer to, and Handley Page in 1911 referred to as a dead air region. Uh, and he, <clears throat> he was concerned with ways of preventing what happens in figure three, or at least deferring it to higher angles of attack. Um, some of his motivation was loss of aircraft. Um, as, as Harry mentioned, the Handley Page Type F crashed in December 1912 at Hendon after a stall and a spin, um, and both the pilot, Lieutenant Park, and the works manager were killed in that crash. And uh, the prototype of the V-1500, uh, the Super Handley, as it was called, um, it took off from Cricklewood and was over Golders Green somewhere where all, when all the engines stopped. And uh, the pilot did a tight turn to get it back to Cricklewood. And uh, again, it stalled and spun, and uh, there was only one survivor from that crash. So that certainly was part of the, the motivation, was this concern at aircraft losses. Um, what Handy Page did is he did some wind tunnel tests, and this shows a picture of the first thing that he tried out. <clears throat> There's a paper in the, uh, in the Aeronautical Journal of 1911 at which he discusses how wings generate lift. You know, 1911, this is a, a 21, 22-year-old man, sorry, 26-year-old man, talking to the Royal Aeronautical Society about wings and lift with the aerodynamic understanding that existed in, in 1911. And the thing that exercised him was that a high aspect ratio wing stalled at a relatively low angle of attack, so 10 to 15 degrees, whereas a square wing, a low aspect ratio wing, a square plate, you could get up to about 50 degrees before it stalled. And he interpreted the reason for that as the air from the sides, the edges, feeding round into the dead air space above him. Uh, it, what we would say now is it's, it's wingtip vortices. It's really the thing that gives Concorde its, its, its uh, good landing characteristics. Um, but he saw it as air feeding into the dead air region. And one way of doing this is to put some slots in the wing. So he, he produced this wing, which is a series of square wings connected by little slots. Um, but when he plotted... Uh, maximum lift against angle of attack, he found that it didn't make any difference. So he then tried cutting the wing the other way, and he, this is his first test, he took an aerofoil and cut a slot through it, and uh, compared that slot open and slot closed, and it seemed a bit better. Um, and he went on and tried to develop more aerodynamic slots, and uh, these are different stages of development show what uh, what was coming out of his wind tunnel tests. And, and these were wind tunnel tests done in the period sort of 1917 through to 1919. And you can see that on the, the right-hand side, he's finally got an arrangement where uh, by moving the, uh, the leading edge of the wing, having that a, a movable piece and moving it forward into this position, um, enabled him to pretty well double the lift he was um, uh, getting on a lift coefficient on that aircraft, on that aerofoil. Uh, and at that point, he took out a patent. Um, he took it out in 1919, and he, he had the services of a man called Griffith Brewer, 
who is a very interesting character and a clearly very capable patent agent. He, he was the man who put together the Hanley Page patents on slots um, and, and their subsequent ones and really tied, did a very good job of tying up uh, the field for Hanley Page. <clears throat> His other distinctions were he was the first Englishman to fly. Uh, that was when he, he got a lift in Wilbur Wright's flyer at Le Mans when... Uh, in 1908, that famous period of flight demonstration of the flyer. Uh, Charles Rolls followed him as the second man to, Englishman to fly, and Charles Rolls became the first man to buy an aeroplane. He bought a Wright flyer. Brewer became lifelong friend of the Wright family, and he was, he, he was a, a great champion for them in the battle with the Smithsonian Institute, which uh, attempted for years to claim that, in fact, Langley's aerodrome which had failed to fly in, in Washington in 1903, could have flown, um, and they, the, the Smithsonian claimed precedence for Langley over the Wright brothers for many years. Brewer was elected an honorary fellow in 1933, the same year that Orville Wright was elected. He was the president in 1940 to 42, and if you Google on him on the internet, you find that what he comes up in is making a speech in America in 1940 about the Americans coming and joining us in the war. So Brewer tied it all up and in the experiments that Handy Page did, this was, this was one uh, uh, extreme of his testing. He, he took a cambered aerofoil like this and he put one slot in it at the front and there is, there is a series of pictures in He gave a paper in 1921 which shows first an aerofoil which is solid with one slot, then with two slots, then with three, and he just progressively moved the slots back until his six and seven element aerofoils uh, were giving him a lift coefficient of nearly two. They were virtually turning the air vertically downwards at the end. Um, then Lachman comes on the scene. And this uh, is a patent. Remember that Hanley Page patent were taken out in 1919, and he'd done his work running from 1917 through, um, through to 1918-19. Um, this was from Lachman's patent application, and uh, they, they do look rather similar. Um, Lachman's history was that he was a, a Hessian cavalry officer who joined the German Flying Corps, uh, learned to fly, and just when he'd finished his pilot training and was due to go to a squadron, he took off in one of these, uh, pulled a flashy turn at the end of takeoff, um, and got stalled a wing dropped it, spun, and ended up in hospital. Um, so if you trace the history of his patent, he had his crash in August 1917. He lay in his hospital bed thinking about this. Um, I have no idea what aerodynamic training he had before then, but he thought about it, and he came up with this concept of a slotted wing. The patent refers to it as being in the form of a Venetian blind. Um, he got a, a chippy in the... Um, uh, workshops there on the aircraft maintenance workshops to build him a wooden model of this and he used a hairdryer with, and cigarette smoke to, uh, for flow visualization and, uh, and he submitted in February 18, 1918 he submitted a, p a patent application and it was that drawing that you saw plus um, uh, some fairly simple explanation of how he thought it worked and I'm afraid like, he, like Handley Page, 
their, their grasp of aerodynamics was a bit incomplete. It was, it was highly intuitive at that stage. And the patent office said, you have no evidence this work will work. We reject it. Um, he then joined his squadron. He was seriously injured in air combat. Um, and at the end of the war, he enrolled as a student at, at the University of Darmstadt. And had more or less, you know, he'd given up on his, his idea and his patent. Um, meanwhile, in 1920, Handley Page, you've seen this picture already, um, fitted slots. He got, he, he got, he got a hold of a de Havilland DH9 cheap at the end of the war. Um, fixed leading edge slots on it on both upper and lower wings. Uh, and, uh, it flew in March 1920. And he gave a demonstration to the press in 19, October 1920, where I think they, they flew the aircraft stalled and it, it was completely stable and controllable. And, uh, you know, all that had come out of his wind tunnel tests was confirmed, and they were delighted about it. <clears throat> and the press were very excited, too. And Lachman was then a student at Darmstadt, and he saw a German magazine article on the DH-9 test. And he sent this article to the German patent office and said, there you are, look, my invention works. And the German patent office says, we're not convinced. Um, and at that point... He, he asked Prantl at, uh, at Göttingen uh, University, and Göttingen and uh, Prantl is, is like Mecca to aerodynamicists, it was all, and Prantl was the great man. What will it cost me to get a wind tunnel mod made and tested in your wind tunnel? You know, this was a, he was a, well, he, he, he was a 20 something year old young man with, but with a mother who paid him, and a thousand marks in those days, I've translated it to being about 1700 quid now, so it was a, it was, a, it was an investment. And Prantl said, uh, are you really sure you want to spend your money on this? I don't think it's going to work. Um, but the results came back in early 1921, and he got his patent, backdated to February 1918. Um, <clears throat> and Handley Page got to learn about Lachman, and he invited Lachman to meet him in Berlin in August 1921, and they talked for hours and were very enthusiastic about slots. And they agreed to pool their patents and to share future intellectual property. <clears throat> and Lachman got a contract from Handley Page as a consultant, and Handley Page paid him for three years of research at Göttingen on both experimental and theoretical on leading edge slots, um, and leading to Lachman getting his doctorate. But he didn't join the company at that stage. <clears throat> Meanwhile, <clears throat> back at... Uh, at um, Cricklewood, they got a, Andy Page got this de Havilland 9A, which was a biplane, took the wings off it and put this monoplane wing on with slots at the front and um, slotted trailing edge, slotted, slotted flaps and ailerons at the back. Um, Handley Page was, at this stage, he was focused on the, <clears throat> the performance benefit to be had by slats, which was to enable you to make a, a smaller wing. Um, but the problem with slats was that they uh, created drag, and therefore, at the, in the cruise condition, you actually wanted them shut. And this aircraft was fitted with movable slats. They were movable by winding a little handle in the cockpit, so turning a handle around and um, driving a worm gear. Uh, and, uh, and they worked, uh, and pilots didn't like them at all. But they carried on with them, and they, they had a number of airplanes that they fitted slats to. And the, 
The problem was always that you, you had to work it. If you had a biplane with slats on both, both wings, you had to have two handles. And when you move the slats in and out, you change the trim of the aircraft, and you had to keep the aircraft flying and also do something about the trim. And they weren't popular with pilots at all. One step forward that they took, and this was in 1925, was to link them, uh, the, the slat movement, to what was happening to the flaps and the ailerons. And this Hendon was fitted in 1925 with linkages, which you see was link the um, sl slots to the ailerons and to the flaps. And that was, that, was, that was progress, but it wasn't there. And then um, they stumbled on this. In, in, they, were, they were concerned about the, uh, the aerodynamic loads on the f slots that were making the, f on the slats that were causing the pilot so much trouble winding the handles. And so they, what they did was they, they, they pressure plotted around here and uh, they plotted the force vector the direction of the force vector on this, um, with angle of incidence. And basically, at uh, low angle of attack, it's a bit like this. And high angle of attack, it's, it's like that. It's, and it was therefore possible to devise a linkage such that at high angle of attack, the forces would open the slat, and at low angle of attack, they would close it. And, and this was, <clears throat> this was the great breakthrough. Um, it really enabled, um, the leading edge slots to appear as a safety device. You could put wingtip slots on aircraft now, and if you pull the airplane up into a stall, out came the slots, <clears throat> the slats. You had wingtip slots, and you, you could not stall and spin these aircraft. They, they were first fitted on Bristol Bulldog. Um, they became universally adopted, and uh, the income to Hanley Page from the worldwide patent rights of the, the leading edge slot was uh, was three quarters of a million pounds, and as Harry has already mentioned, uh, Gray, the founder and editor of the aeroplane, said its importance to aeronautics was like that of the pneumatic tire to the motor car. This aeroplane, the Gugnank, was uh, designed with automatic slots and with uh, some other features to, uh, and was runner-up in uh, the Safe Aircraft Competition in the States in 1929. Um, that's its party trick. You've seen that picture already. It was actually the, the safe aircraft competition was the beginning of Stoll. Uh, and uh, the winner of the competition had illegally used Handley Page slots and the lawyers fought about it for a year and a half and then uh, <clears throat> the Americans agreed to pay Handley Page the money and that was the beginning of the great rollout of um, contracts around the world. Until the, um, the 30s, the early 30s, mid-30s, uh, airplanes were biplanes, and biplanes had thin wings, and biplanes were susceptible to this um, leading-edge stall, the sudden breakaway of the flow, and therefore the stall and the spin. And that is where the leading-edge slots came in. In the second half of the, uh, the 30s, uh, we were shifting to monoplanes, and monoplanes had thicker wing sections, and the problem of tip stall and, and, and spin was much less acute, and there was less emphasis on slats. Not all aircraft had them. Um, uh, but to get good landing performance, we were now looking at trailing edge flaps. And whilst there were split flaps around, there were, there were also slotted flaps, which were more efficient. 
And here's a patent from 1935 um, from Handley Page of a mechanism which gives you um, a slotted flap when it's open, but closes up the gap and reduces the drag in cruise. That was the beginning of, uh, if you like, the, the evolution that gets us to where we are today, <clears throat> where all transport aircraft now have leading edge slots, slats. Um, they have that because um, the increase of cruise Mach numbers that came with a jet engine and led you to wing sweep gets you back into the problem of tip stall. And the way to combat that was to bring the slot back. But at the same time, we're now into the area where, if you like, the threat from stall is not the issue. Design optimization is the issue. And in optimizing a modern aeroplane these days, um, the high lift system, um, the, the multiple slotted flaps, is a key part of it. So at the end, as, 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 as uh, Harry said, Lachman pointed to, told Handley Page when Handley Page was in his last year or so, look what we've achieved, we've conquered the whole world. And uh, as Handley Page said, the patents have expired in 19... The, the, the main patent expired in 1938 because they only had a 20-year life. So now let me turn to laminar flow control, which is the other half of the story. Um, I've just put up here the list of, and I won't go through them, the, uh, the achievements that are the, the steps that take us to the point where we understand that, that there is laminar and turbulent boundary layers. The change from one to the other comes from instability. Um, uh, and, you know, Melville Jones in 1929 said, well, if you suck the boundary layer, you could get more laminar flow. And basically that is for two reasons. One, Sucking the boundary layer increases the stability of the velocity profile in the boundary layer uh, and therefore enables it to uh, continue to higher Reynolds numbers based on boundary layer thickness. That's the parameter used for boundary layers. But the other thing is that suction takes air out of the boundary layer, so it keeps the boundary layer thinner, and therefore the Reynolds numbers in the boundary layer don't grow so much. So suction is the way to um, achieve long lengths of laminar flow. And up to the, uh, the end of World War II, uh, there'd been work in UK and in the US a, a bit. There had been a, a very solid body of theoretical work in Germany, in, basically in Göttingen. I mean, Göttingen is the place where it led the world in, in terms of the quality of the work that they did there theoretically. Fenninger in Zurich had done a long series of experimental studies, so he had actually, in a wind tunnel, demonstrated it. Um, after the war, uh, the US and the UK began to do research on suction, laminar flow control by suction. And in 1949, Lachman went to um, see Fenninger's supervisor in Zurich, that's Professor Ackeret, who was an old colleague of Lachman's from the days when they were both research students at Göttingen. Um, Fenninger had gone to the States to work for Northrop, but Lachman saw Fenninger's results and went back and persuaded Hanley Page that uh, they should get into this. In 1951, they built an eight-foot wing with suction through sintered metal inserts, which was tested at the NPL. In 53, they tested a vampire with a glove with um, suction through porous metal inserts. In uh, 55, they tested it with suction through drilled metal strips. And 63 to 65, 
they had a swept wing at Cranfield mounted on top of a Lancaster and then a Lincoln, which had suction through narrow slots. And they backed this all up with quite a substantial amount of engineering research into how to construct the porous surfaces, what, what can you do to prevent insect contamination on the leading edge. Um, and they also had a range of project studies, <coughs> some of which Harry's shown you, and I'll, I'll show some of them again. So that's a picture of the... Um, not a very exciting picture compared to all these airplanes, I agree, but what it, what it shows you is... Um, this is a wind tunnel. That's an eight-foot-long piece of wing. These are sintered strips of... These are strips of something called porosint. Uh, and the flow visualization, where the flow is turbulent, it turns out white, it's scrubbed white, it's back to the underground. This dark stuff is what is left on the surface um, where the flow is laminar and does not scrub it away. So you can see the extent of laminar flow they achieved, and, uh, and the, the Reynolds number back to there is about 15 million. They then flew uh, this vampire, which you can see it has gloves on each wing to balance, but this one has these sintered metal strips in. And, uh, and they, they, that, that flew in 1953, and the results weren't satisfactory. And that was really because of the difficulty of making a, f a wing for flight um, and keeping the junctions between the, um, the, the strips and the, the structure um, having negligible steps there. So that they had a, a, a construction problem which prevented them getting laminar flow. Uh, they tested it again, this time with metal inserts, which were um, drilled metal strips, 10-thou holes, I think 9-thou holes, actually, um, all over. And this time it worked. They got laminar flow almost back across the whole wing, and they had a Reynolds number of 15 million. Um, they then went to uh, a swept wing, which is a, a, the wing of a, a fallen gnat, mounted on top of a Lancaster flown at Cranfield. Um, by then, uh, it, it had been observed that boundary layers on swept leading edges went through transition earlier than all the theoretical models suggested. And it, an understanding developed of the, of the quite separate <coughs> transition mechanism that occurs on a swept leading edge. It's called cross-flow instability. Um, and uh, Fenninger's group in the States, Fenninger in Northrop, was leading an activity similar to the, the activity in the UK that, um, that Lachman was leading. And uh, they had done good modeling of it, and they'd, they'd modeled the amount of suction needed in the leading edge region to suppress this cross-flow instability. And the Handley Page uh, swept wing was designed around that. It, it, it had suction through thin metal slots. I forgot where they, where they were. They three thousand, Mike? I've forgotten how, how big they were. Very narrow metal slots, many of them, along the wing. And uh, when they flew it, they were disappointed. They, what they found was that if you flew it at low altitude, you got a little bit of laminar flow out here but the rest of the flow was turbulent. And um, <clears throat> what finally came as an understanding from this, and, and Mike Gaster, who was sitting here, was very much caught up in helping them to understand it. He wasn't on the project. He was just at Cranfield being a helpful chap. And uh, 
what was happening was that if you get the boundary layer inboard anywhere, turbulent, um, that turbulence transmits itself out along the attachment line, and you have what's called uh, attachment line contamination. And it doesn't matter that you're sucking well enough to suppress the cross-flow instability. This contamination blows it for you. And um, although that aircraft looks as though it has a, um, a, a fence to stop that happening, actually it's not a very clever fence because the flow off it triggers the uh, turbulent, turbulent boundary layer anyway. So uh, Mike here invented a thing called the Gaster Bump on the leading edge, which is a little nodule which sticks out and is an attachment point. And after that, they got successful results. So uh, they finally uh, achieved 90% laminar flow over the middle of the wing up to a Reynolds number of 13 million. And uh, they thought that was vindicated. Um, I haven't really time to tell you, but I will, that uh, in, uh, in 1971, uh, I think, I was at Bedford doing research on boundary layers, and I'd argued that if you'd sucked through the surface, you could simulate high Reynolds number, so you could simulate high turbulent Reynolds number. And Mike heard me putting this argument out at an ARC meeting and said, you could get hold of the old Hanley Page wing and do that and prove it, tested in the 13 by 9 tunnel. So I rang Cranfield and said, the handy page that wing, have you still got it? What are you doing? You know, could I have it? And they said, oh, we sent it to the scrapyard two weeks ago. And so, and this was in the days when you could do this sort of thing as a civil servant. I went to the local scrapyard, well, it was, it was, you know, 15, 20 miles away, dashed across there in my car, found it on a pile of rubble, and bought it for 50 pounds. <laughs> so this wing, which had cost in that, in those, in that day's money, a quarter of a million pounds to make. Uh, I reclaimed for 50 quid with the intention that we would refurbish it and test it. But it was badly corroded. Uh, well, we'll get the apprentices to fix it. Then I got moved, and in the end, about a decade later, it uh, it went to the knacker's yard without having a chance to prove its point, I'm afraid. Very sad story. But this is why you do laminar flow control. Um, these are drag coefficients. On a wing that is fully turbulent, the profile drag coefficient at a Reynolds number of about 30 million is that. It doesn't have any pump drag, but that's its drag. Hybrid laminar flow control, where you do some suction around the leading edge. Um, uh, it's total drag with a very small amount of suction drag, or pump drag as we call it, um, but much reduced profile drag, profile drag about two-thirds. Uh, you'd get a, a, a net, net drag of about two-thirds. A fully laminar wing with suction across, along the whole cord, um, the pump drag is much greater than the profile drag, because what's left at the end of the wing isn't very much, because you've sucked the boundary layer away, away. But nevertheless, it's down here. You've got a factor of six down on the, on the basic profile drag, which is why the all-laminar flow airplane is, is such a, a keen candidate. This was... the. One study that Andy Page did, it was a business jet. It would have suction through the wing, suck tailplane, suck fin, and all that stuff ducted away through pumps at the back. Um, this was the other one he showed you. This would have suction over the entire surface, um, and it was projected to have direct operating costs th a third lower than conventional airliners. And Lachman's last project was... Um, this one, the HP-135, 
which was a military transport with a range of 7,300 miles. And uh, the same kind of Mach number as the Victor, 0.875 was its target Mach number. But uh, 1965 was the year that he retired. What's the future outlook for laminar flow control now? In the mid-1960s, fuel prices were low. The technical obstacles, particularly insect um, contamination, and also just maintaining poor surfaces. Um, it all seemed very difficult, and they, uh, both in the UK and the US, we stopped in the mid-1960s. Um, since then, there have been off and on. About a decade later, they started again, and there have been some pretty substantial programs in the US, and there have been some worthwhile work in Europe, too. Uh, we're now in an area where time when pressure to reduce fuel burn is greater because of, A, rising fuel prices, which focuses airlines' minds, and the pressure to reduce climate impact, which the airlines are increasingly concerned about. And uh, you know, only yesterday there were people sounding off about air, aviation is going to be the worst polluter by, 19, by 2015. Um, and when you look at, and in Greener by Design, we have looked at uh, all the options available for reducing fuel burn. Um, it comes out the drag reduction by laminar flow control is potentially uh, the most powerful of the, of the, of the candidate topics. Uh, within the European Framework Program 7 Clear Sky, JTI, that's Joint Technology Initiative, which is... Uh, I've forgotten. It's 1.6 billion euro. It's a lot of money. Um, there are flight demonstrations planned on an A340 aircraft involving, first of all, natural laminar flow control. That is a wing shape that um, uh, enables you to achieve laminar flow halfway back. Then hybrid laminar flow control, which is works on bigger aircraft where you use um, suction near the leading edge, again, to get laminar flow partway back. There are no full laminar flow control projects at the moment. Um, but we understand, I mean, it's rash to say we understand always, but we do believe we understand the physics of boundary layer transition and boundary layer control. Um, what's left is the engineering. Um, but Handy Page uh, in this country, in Northrop in the States, broke the ground in the, in the 1950s. And uh, I believe now is the time for us to go back, revisit their studies, and set our sights on, on an aircraft with full laminar control, because by 2050, uh, that'll be the only acceptable kind of aircraft. It'll be very difficult to make, but um, it's only engineering, and uh, we all know engineers can do anything. They try. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. And, uh... Simon Howison, the Engineering Director of Military Air Solutions at BA Systems, uh, an avionics engineer. Good afternoon. It's good to be here at Hamilton Place, and it's a real privilege to be delivering my part in a centenary tribute to one of the great founding fathers of the aviation industry. 
For the record, what I'm going to say and what I'm going to show you represents a manifestation of my views and not necessarily those of BAE Systems, the company I work for, although we do see eye to eye at least some of the time. One other thing, during this tribute and taking a cue from Sir Frederick himself, I will refer with all due respect to the man and his company as HP. What I want us to look at is HP's military aircraft and their legacy. I want us to look at the changes we have seen from the environment in which HP operated in and that within which we operate today. And in this context, I want us to look at the military aircraft of today and the outlook for them in the future. So, I'd better begin. Hanley Page Military Aircraft, a sovereign company with a sovereign customer, highlighted with an outstanding 86-year record of service with nearly 9,000 aircraft for the Royal Air Force from its foundation in 1918 through to 2004, and the very last military jet stream only leaving Royal Navy service earlier this year. Major contributions in three world wars. 600, 0100 and 0400 heavy bombers in the first world war. Nearly 1600 twin engine Hamden Hereford aircraft. And more than 6000 four engined Halifax medium and heavy bombers in the second world war. And the 84 Victor nuclear V bombers in the cold war and later Victor tanker conversion supporting the Falklands and the Gulf wars. The Holton transport conversion of the Halifax, notably with Freddie Laker in the Berlin airlift of 1948. The first major post-war humanitarian aid airlift operation, and which activity now is so often prevalent in military aircraft operations alongside full-scale military conflict. The 146 post-World War II Hastings transports, which served the RAF for more than 20 years, prefacing the continuing need for large-scale global transport aircraft logistics today. From this, the Hanley Page legacy. The split or diversified production principle of the Hamden and Halifax era is the standard practice in multinational military and civil aircraft programs today. Now the traditional subcontractor build-to-print pattern has been replaced by design and build partnerships, including managing the correspondence supply chain and equipping, with a prime company being the program integrator at final assembly. Large-scale Hamden and Halifax production by English Electric at Preston in World War II was a major foundation stone of the vast Europe-leading BAE Systems military aircraft facilities at Wharton and Salmsbury of today. The famous HP slot endures in every kind of aeroplane and in multiple form in the jet engine. The perennial pursuit of lambda flow and boundary layer control, of which we've just heard, by such diverse artifices as varial camber, differential ailerons and flaps, smart morphing structures and suction, continues. The much-praised HP-115 pre-Concorde slender delta wing research vehicle convincingly proved the low-speed handling ability of the supersonic delta wing form. Consider the defence threats. Both the incidents and the nature of conflict have changed massively since HP's time. The prime example is the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict, longer than either World War I or World War II, where hitherto conventional adversarial air-to-air -air combat is completely absent and where intelligence, cyber warfare, ground attack and supply logistics in supporting the ground forces 
our imperative tools and the extreme sophistication of defence electronics and unmanned vehicles are increasingly proving their effectiveness and transport and attack helicopters have primary place. Five points highlight the principal consideration of modern warfare. Technology, new approaches and concepts, global war on terrorism, predominance of failed states and the need for humanitarian aid. If we look from that as to what the industrial structure looks like today. In the HP era, large number of sovereign companies, many autocratically led by full lifetime pioneering signatories and competing for the same customer, the Royal Air Force. A similar situation in other European countries. 1946, 27 original British airframe companies and 8 engine companies and this before the advent of helicopters by Westland via American Sikorsky license. 1960, government enforced amalgamations into two main groups, BAC and Hawker Siddeley. <laughs> Post-HP, 1962, the initiation of successive European collaborative program alliances, leading to Concorde, Jaguar, Tornado, Airbus and Eurofighter. 1977 saw the nationalisation of BAC and HSA to form British Aerospace. 1983 saw the privatisation of British Aerospace. 1999, British Aerospace and Marconi Electronic Systems merged to form BAE Systems. 2000 saw the formation of EADS, the European Aeronautic Defence and Space Company. 2009, if you look at Europe... Marshall, Cobham and Rolls-Royce are now the only surviving original founding aviation industrial companies in the UK and Dassault the only one in France. In the US, all three primes still retain founding signatures, Boeing, Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Moving from there, if we look at the European landscape, what was a sovereign company and a sovereign customer for HP has now become international defence considerations, wherein aircraft are but one element of a totally integrated defence system, embracing land, sea and air components, and channelled by the influences of such organisations as the EU, the UN, NATO, WTO, regional political and trade alliances, and the inevitable strategic defence reviews. This is well exemplified by the BAE Systems portfolio, now embracing combat aircraft, defence electronics, military land vehicles and aircraft carriers, and operating across the world in eight home markets. Today we have large national influence sector champions, leading edge projects pursued through programme-based collaboration, national interest influences collaborative relationships, Few successful pan-national defence consolidations. In a missile field, MBDA may be the one exception to that. Airbus as a single corporate entity, is this the example of the way forward for the future? Restructuring and downsizing still to take place across Europe. Compared with the HP era, it is now an extremely complex picture. The Old adage, the future is now, implies the near and medium term future military aircraft picture in Europe 
is essentially centred on five major programmes already <coughs> defined and established and in continuing substantial evolution improvement. This consists primarily of three independently conceived, fly-by-wire and artificially stabilised cyber warfare equipped non-metallic composite airframe structure supersonic canard fighters, all still in their youth and with very considerable potential for development and upgrade. An American supersonic multi-role Stovall stealth fighter with major UK industrial input and European customer preferences, and a new generation European tactical airlifter essential to replace the ubiquitous and venerable Lockheed Hercules born out of the Korean War and first flight 1954, 55 years ago. Beyond this immediate agenda is emerging a generation of unmanned aerial vehicles, which I will discuss later. If we consider each of those five aircraft, the Eurofighter Typhoon, a four-nation, 22 billion program involving UK, Germany, Italy and Spain, Industrial Partners, BA Systems, EADS, Finn Mechanica and CASA, plus the Eurojet engine, engine Consortium, designed to replace 10 existing aircraft types in Europe. Very advanced, autonomous, automated systems architecture enables single-seat swing-roll operation, i.e. the simultaneous combined air com combat and ground attack mission capability with a single pilot concentrating solely on prosecuting the mission without also having to monitor the systems, and hence four times the pilot efficiency compared with a two-crew tornado. More than 600 ordered, Tranche 3A, you'll note, was recently confirmed, in service with five air arms in the UK, Germany, Italy, Spain and Austria. And the initial export deliveries to Saudi Arabia, 72 aircraft ordered, 24 to be built in the UK, 48 in Kingdom, and directly follows from the Tornado programme. Although the first notions of the Eurofighter were as long as goes 1972, two major redesigns have resulted in the exceptional, capable, world-leading platform and weapon system now in service. Recognising this demolishes the myth that it is an outmoded Cold War airplane. Saab Gripen fourth-generation indigenous Swedish jet fighter program. Sweden, historically politically neutral, in service with Swedish, South African, Czech Republic and soon the Thai Air Forces. Dassault Raphael, sovereign French program. France is outside NATO. In service with the French Air Force and Navy only, no foreign sales to date. Combat proven with four-month active service deployment to Afghanistan, following an earlier carrier-borne operation there. The Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter, world's first and only stealthy supersonic multi-mission joint combat aircraft. Transatlantic cooperative venture led by Lockheed Martin, teamed with Northrop Grumman and BAE Systems as first-tier partners. Fifth-generation supersonic fighter, basically conceived to meet the multi-mission needs of five air arms in two countries within a single basic design, to replace the AV-8B Harrier, A-10, F-16, F-A-18 Hornet for the US forces, and the Harrier and Sea Harrier for UK forces. BA Systems designing and building rear fuselage and empennage, plus fuel system, airframe structural and dynamic testing, 
technically involved in many areas, other areas of expertise, such as the mission systems and the support model. Rolls-Royce provide the lift engine and drive gearbox, and also the ingenious main engine swivelling exhaust nozzle. Airbus 400M, 21st century Lockheed Hercules replacement, sized and equipped to handle today's military equipment. World's most powerful turboprop engine, build status far more complex than originally specified. First carbon fibre wing for large transport aircraft, 192 aircraft ordered for nine Launch Nation customers. Where are these going to go beyond the original? If you look at the export market, the contender aircraft, Eurofighter Typhoon, Saab Gripen, Dassault Rafale, Boeing FA-18 E&F, Lockheed Martin F-16, and the MiG-35. The markets looking at, for the next five years, Potential customers, Brazil, Bulgaria, Croatia, Denmark, Greece, India, Japan, Kuwait, Libya, Oman, Qatar, Switzerland, and the United Arab Emirates. Who will succeed in those markets? Today's success is more dependent on the politics than the engineering. A poor product is a barrier to entering the competition, but without significant support from one's own government, an export sale is hard, if not impossible, to achieve. I'll sort of come back to unmanned air vehicles. This is the major, wholly new opportunity and industrial activity for the future. Whereas Handley Page's initial objective was simply to achieve man-carrying powered flight, only now, a century later, is there an accelerating proliferation of just the opposite, unmanned aerial vehicles, and in which field the European aircraft industry is a leading player. Although the concept of remotely piloted vehicles is by no means new and dates from the 1950s as aerial gunnery targets, neither the technologies nor the motivation have hitherto existed to make UAVs more than a curiosity, nor to progress them from remotely piloted to autonomous vehicles. This despite the infamous Sandy's White Paper in 1957 declaring the end of manned aircraft. The main BAE Systems UAV programs demonstrate the scope of UAVs. Tyrannus, a £124 million project jointly funded by the UK MOD and UK industry to provide the UK MOD with experimental evidence on the potential capabilities and help to inform decisions on the future mix of manned and unmanned fast jet aircraft. Tyrannus aims to push the boundaries of technology by providing advancements in low observability capability and autonomous mission systems operations, demonstrating the feasibility and utility of UAVs. The appointment of BAE Systems as the industry lead and prime contractor is important in signifying the move from 100% company funding to getting government formal involvement and financial support. Hertie is a low-cost, high-endurance unmanned air system providing robust, cost-effective surveillance and reconnaissance capability. A fully autonomous image collection and exploitation system supports the integration of a full range of imaging sensors providing clear, high-quality imagery. Data can be relayed to ground stations, forward deployed units and command centres in a variety of operational environments with very low bandwidth demand. 
simple and robust to operate with low demands on logistics, personnel and communication infrastructure. Mantis, deep and persistent strategic UAS capability. Maximize exploitation and interoperability across existing assets and infrastructure. 24-hour all-weather operational capability, multi-sensor capability, armed capability, and a highly autonomous system. Before closing, it is perhaps interesting to reflect on some of the precedent HP what might have been ideas generated by the company's far-sighted leading designers and researchers, and particularly note the associated dates. 1955, HP-100 Canard supersonic bomber. 1956, the HP-109 supersonic transatlantic civil aircraft. 1960, HP-126 Airbus project, blended wing body. 1965, HP-135 global range boundary layer control transport. The ethos of the six-decade HP regime can be said to be the sustained primacy of military bomber transport aircraft, diligent research and exploitation of the basic enabling science of aviation, and aeronautical education. All three remain equally valid in the industry today and for as far ahead as can currently be foreseen. I'm told that HP always had a great confidence in the ability of his designers and in the 1920s, he was bold enough to advertise his aircraft as guaranteed to fly. Today, we have to define and meet a whole matrix of interlocking performance guarantees, but nowhere to my knowledge do we actually guarantee flight. <laughs> in summary, I have hope I have shown you that, liberally spiced with HP legacy benefits, the British and European military aircraft industry continues to hold its rightful place as a powerful and fully competitive force in the global defence nexus, in no small way because of the ability of our founding fathers like HP to project forward and to harvest the potential of existing and developing knowledge and skill sets. Just as they did in his day, the challenge of still being able to effectively do this is starkly laid out before us. Only history will tell if we rise to the challenge. Of one thing I am certain, we do, as he did then, stand on the cusp of a change. His legacy is a challenge to us all. Thank you. Can I invite you both, please, to <clears throat> join me on the platform? While you collect your thoughts... Um, <clears throat> I wonder, um, both of you, if you would just give us some insight. In, uh, John, in 1927, the, the patent on the slat and what that meant in commercial terms uh, was hugely significant both for the company and one would expect for the government. Could you say something about the relationship of R&D funding back then in terms of government and company? And Simon, if you will look at the same thing in the UAS era over, say, Mantis and Tyrannis. So I, think, yeah, I, mean, I think if I looked at the, <coughs> the funding issue, we still see quite a conflict between what is company funded and what is government funded. Um, I think there is a difference nowadays in that in those days, if you invested money and designed a good product, 
you could expect to acquire a market for it. I think in today's political market, it is really difficult to invest money in R&T and actually create any market out of it. A, f a government decides to buy a trainer or to buy a combat aircraft because they have a need for one and they have a budget for one. And the fact that you have a good aircraft will not change their view as to whether they want one or not. But if you don't have a good product, then you cannot actually join the competition. And so much of our R&D is actually about if you do not invest in those areas, it's a barrier to entry in the competition rather than you can create a market by having something new. And I think we see that also when you look at the patent position. A lot of what we do is a very expensive evolution from where we are, and most of it is actually there is nothing you can patent there. So the best benefit you get out of it is that you're there and have it available for the customer, not that you can actually sell the patent and make three quarters of a million, whatever that would gross up to, to in today's money, might be quite attractive. Indeed. Uh, surprising, perhaps, to some. Yes, I mean... <clears throat> One of the things that Handy Page said somewhere to someone is that the aim of this company is to keep its head in the clouds, its feet on the ground, and its hand in the pocket of the ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look, I mean, the, the, <clears throat> the 90s and 20s, 20s and 30s weren't great for the company. Um, they... Blackburn seemed to be their main competitor in, in the mid-twenties. And the way that I understood it worked you know, was that um, the ministry would announce a, a, a specification for a torpedo bomber, for example. The, uh, the Harrow biplane was, was one such. Um, and I think they funded the building of two or three prototypes. And the the development of the slot, I think, was all part of trying to improve these products. They had a prototype and they flew it and then they, they tried to improve the slot. I think that was, ba my understanding is that basically that was done on, uh, on ministry funding. They, they, were, they were not building these airplanes as private venture bids to get into the military competition. I think they had military funding for it and that carried on through. But it didn't lead to any production aircraft. I'm not sure how well Blackburn did either. So, um, but Blackburn did win some of the competitions, and then Handley Page were left with an airplane that um, that wasn't a lot of use. And what they did was to, um, assisted by old them, um, Griffith Brewster Brewer, he managed to tie up the patents. And Handley Page, after the the Gugnan episode where he tried to get the, um, the competitor aircraft uh, disqualified, the Tanager, Curtis Tanager disqualified uh, because it had stolen his slat and he hadn't paid, paid for it. And after about two years, the companies decided that it was only costing, the, you know, that the lawyers were getting rich and, and <laughs> nobody else was. And at that point, Curtis agreed to acknowledge that they had won the competition. Well, they, their airplane had a Handley Page slot on it. They paid Handley Page royalties. They signed a deal with Handley Page. And uh, very shortly afterwards, Handley Page, protected by his patent, signed a deal with uh, the UK Minister of Aviation. 
uh, that all future use of this on UK military aircraft, there would be some royalty to Handley Page. And what he then did was he, um, he went country to country at government level selling them right in the, the patents. So you could make an airplane in Australia or where yeah. with, uh, and, the, and the, the government could buy these airplanes. The government had paid for the, for the license rights. And when it came to Germany, um, the Germans said, no, we're not paying this. The, the Junkers Ju-52, which was that triple engine monoplane, uh, that had um, strange, it was called double wing. It had a strange um, biggish flap at the back, uh, which separated out from the, the main wing. And um, so they said, we have this in force. We're not going to pay for your patents. We have precedent. This airplane is flying and you can't sell us a patent. And at that stage, um, Handley Page sued uh, Junkers in a German court for violation of Lachmann's patent. <laughs> <clears throat> and they won, and, and the German government paid up. So in, in, in those days, I, I think they, um, they relied, as I mean, until relatively recently, you know, until a couple of decades ago, a great deal of, in military air certainly, the R&D was done, funded by... Absolutely, government. yeah. Uh, one question there, then Andrew Brooks in the front row. Yes, Patrick Hassel of Rolls-Royce Heritage Trust again. John Green's managed to answer two of my questions before I've actually answered, asked them. Uh, <laughs> the confirmation that Handley Page's ethos was indeed to keep your hands in the government pocket uh, and whether the, uh, the Germans uh, ever paid for the slot uh, because I think the Messerschmitt 109 used automatic slots as well. Um, but I, I did have a third question, which was uh, looking at all the boundary control projects, they all seem to have very large wing areas. And it struck me that this might have been because of the difficulty of incorporating uh, variable camber devices, if we call them that, uh, with boundary layer control. Uh, is that the case, that, the, that um, slotted devices and sucking are mutually incompatible? Um, it's, it's certainly the case that you don't want hardware around the leading edge that, that's, that's got bumps and, and lumps in it. So if you're looking at a future laminar laminar flow control airplane. Um, you want to get your high lift some way other than um, uh, deploying something at the leading edge. It may well be that you could droop the leading edge at some future date. Um, but the Handley Page laminar flow control projects were all aimed at full laminar flow control. Um, and the difference, I'm sorry to get into aerodynamics here, but the difference between hybrid laminar flow control and full laminar flow control and hybrid is like natural laminar flow control. Most of the drag on an airfoil, you know, 80% of it, comes from the upper surface. And it comes from the growth of the boundary layer over the rear half of the upper surface where the pressure is rising towards the trailing edge. And when you actually look at it and do, do boundary layer sums, take it, if you take a modern airfoil and do a full aerodynamic calculation of it, and then you look at what happens between mid-cord and the trailing edge, and the boundary layer thickness and the momentum defect thickness in the, at the trailing edge is about seven times what it is at mid-chord. And that is just the multiplying effect of the pressure gradient. Over the back half of the wing, friction doesn't come into it. It is just the growth of the boundary layer displacement thickness produces pressure drag. And therefore, if you minimize the boundary layer thickness at mid-chord, and it's been growing in zero pressure gradient or favorable pressure gradients, or not very adverse pressure gradients, 
if you minimize it up to the point where on a modern aircraft the shock wave and then the pressure rise follows by minimizing it there you minimize what gets multiplied by seven at the trailing edge and that's how you get get your drag down if you say oh well actually what i want is a full laminar flow laminar flow all the way to the trailing edge um, and because we only had half an hour i didn't put up any equations but what the equations show you is that what suction enables you to do is counter the effects of this rising pressure gradient on boundary layer stability. As your pressure rises towards the trailing edge, the boundary layer goes unstable. But if you suck hard enough, you counter that. And therefore, in optimizing um, a sucked 100% surface, you find that when you do your trade-off, it's actually better to have a lower aerodynamic loading, to not have such steep pressure rises in it. So when you look at doing the overall optimization of that surface, and obviously you've got to take into account things like weight and all those things, but the total optimization, you come out with a much less highly loaded wing. It just, it, it just comes from the total optimization of the thing. Thank you, Sir Brian. Forgive me for bringing this one up, but we've got such a, a good maybe of people in the Kirk, if you like, who are Hanley pages of one sort or another. I just want to try and touch on sort of the morality of this, because Sir Fred, from my understanding, was brought up from a deeply religious background, and he was well known for quoting in his wonderful Cotswold uh, biblical quotations, etc., etc. And Simon was talking about unmanned vehicles, and of course, the more technology we get, the more grief we get into. Kundas is a classic case, the air power shoots down a a tanker, and, and there's lots of heart-searching about the effects. The philosophy of the company, would, would, would you, Simon, or anybody else like to contemplate what Sir Fred would think of unmanned? I mean, did his morality enthuse or affect his, his, the way he approached his business sense? Because we talk about hands in pockets, but I think Fred was probably more than just a bean counter and a money grabber. There was a moral dimension. And I wonder if anybody would like to say what he might have thought about this trend for greater autonomy in unmanned vehicles and where that might be leading us. Okay, I won't try the latter part as to what he might have thought. Um, I think if you look at autonomous systems and the ethics of it, um, I think we are unlikely to see a position where an autonomous vehicle is left on its own to make a decision to carry out a strike in any manner. So you're looking at something that is autonomous in its ability to manoeuvre around the sky, autonomous in its ability to collect data. Um, I don't think anybody is at the path here where they actually want it autonomously to go around and decide what to attack. Um, you, know, you still have, all you have effectively done with the unmanned vehicle is remove the man out of harm's way um, and, and put him somewhere safe. So we still see a path that unmanned air vehicles need aircrew actually involved in the remote operation of them because there is still an airmanship element to it. There is still a decision element to be made in terms of what are you actually going to do when you've found something. Um, so I don't see a, a great difference there directly between a manned and unmanned vehicle. I think there is a, a wide area of debate about the society in general and autonomous systems. Um, and you may have seen the uh, Royal Academy of Engineering published two weeks ago uh, a paper where they carried out a study looking at some of the issues behind that. And it gets quite philosophical, I think. 
Oh, I, I, I'm not knowledgeable. Harry's the man to talk about Sir, Sir Fred's view on uh, morality. Well, I'm sure he had a verse for it. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not so well up in the, in the good book as he was, but uh, I do remember him talking once, I think it was at a, a, a company Christmas party, when he talked about mechanized Moloch, where, you know, he, he, he imagined, uh, uh, you know, um, engineering mechanism just uh, sort of uh, completely displacing uh, uh, humanitarian issues. But um, I can't remember exactly what he said. Uh, the only other thing that comes to mind is perhaps a little bit out of uh, out of subject, but uh, he was very much against uh, large conglomerations. He, he always quoted the proverb of the man who built a bigger a bigger barn, you know, to keep his to keep his uh, uh, wheat in, uh, and then you know his um, soul was required of him. He always used to quote that whenever people talked about uh, you know these large uh, companies and combines. Um, but uh, I'm sure he would have had a, a, a an apt biblical expression. But uh, sorry, I can't remember any. <laughs> Does anybody else have anything to offer on that insight? One here. My name is Tony Chapman. I came here to attend from California. I was a student apprentice at HP's. I started in 1940. Battle of Britain started at the same time. And I left in the end of 1950. For the last two years, I was Sir Fred Drake's technical assistant. I shared an office with Gus Lachman. So I can't offer much in the way of technical comments, and I must say at this point I'm very impressed with the papers that have been given. It's well worth the miles I came to get here. Bless you. So I thank you very much for that. Um, Dr. Larkman was a wonderful man. I got to know him extremely well. The layout was that HP had an office, and on one side was Miss McMichael, his secretary, and on the other office, on the other side was another office, and it was um, quite large. And uh, Dr. Lachman and I occupied that office. And there was a communicating door between HP's office and our office. And it was used quite often. Um, what sort of man was he? I don't know what he would have thought about unmanned flight. Uh, he was a brilliant man. I think he was the most brilliant man I've ever met. He had a photographic memory. This is not rumor. I know it. He proved it time and time again. I would give him something, and he'd read it overnight and come back the next day quoting sections of the book or the report or whatever. As Chapman, page 14 is ridiculous. <laughs> He was an inspiration. He didn't like to delegate. He ran the company. Maybe he was an autocrat or a tycoon 
He knew everything that was going on. And woe betide the person who was doing anything serious and he didn't know about it. That's, uh, you know, makes me a little unique. There are not many people around who knew both of them. And really, I think Lachman has taken up a lot of time here today. Uh, I can say a few things about Lachman's internment. He had applied for British citizenship, but it had not come through in 1939. So the moment war was declared, he was interned in the Isle of Man. And until 1943, he was held in incommunicado. So uh, at that time, Sir Frederick had besieged the ministry with pleads to let Handy Page senior technical personnel communicate with him, and they finally gave in, and uh, people like Godfrey Lee, but not only Godfrey Lee, would go to the Isle of Man from time to time and talk to him. But nevertheless, the three or four years that he spent uh, not using his brain in technical capacity had a, a very serious effect on him. And when he and I shared the office, and you must remember that he was uh, about 30 years older than I, he was not director of research. He was in the office and HP would think up something for him to do. Sometimes Dr. Larkman would think up things to do on his own without help from anybody else. And um, if HP agreed, he'd go ahead. So he, the, those years of inactivity were very, very serious for him. And um, I'm very glad that he eventually was given, given the job of being in charge of research at the company. In, um, I think it was in 1948, the uh, British citizenship did come through, and uh, there was a great elation, and a big party at the Café Royal, which was the favorite haunt of Sir Frederick for these sorts of things, and I was uh, privileged to be there. Um, 19, at the end of 1950, I resigned and went to the United States, and I've lived there ever since, in California. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Final question in the second row, in the middle, a lady in the uh, second row on this side. Okay. There we are. Thank you. I'm Pat Wilson, um, Aerodynamics, 1953 to 1960. Um, I just wanted to ask Simon, he, he said, unmanned aircraft um, from 1950 and I just can remember um, hiding under the kitchen table during the Second World War thinking that the doodlebugs that were going overhead were actually unmanned aircraft. Could you tell me I was wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'd count them as cruise missiles. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm... 
it's it's quite a narrow path as to what is what. In general, the expectation is that an aircraft has the ability and on a good day returns back and lands itself, <laughs> uh, whereas a missile doesn't come back. I've often thought a missile business would be a better business to be in because you don't get irate pilots complaining at you. You're just gone. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'll bring us to a close now so that we can take a break. It is interesting to reflect that although our, our industry and the science that underpins it, in practical terms anyway, is only just a little more than 100 years old, yet the science has deep roots. And in a sense, we may have felt it appropriate at one stage in the development of aircraft to ignore a particular aspect, like uh, the importance of laminar flow off across the whole wing. Things change. Now we live in an environment where the challenge of carbon emissions, etc., are, are, are asking us to dig really deep into the scientific roots of aviation. It's a classic example of how things can change. But I should thank on your behalf both our presenters for two very stimulating interventions and uh, certainly for me illuminated greatly the history uh, of uh, Handley Page. I thank you all as well for your interventions, particularly you, sir, for that uh, very wonderful piece of testimony of what it was really like. So thank you very much, and if we'd show our appreciation in the normal way.